You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 475 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, September 28th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about a lot of allergies, not maybe all of them, but we're going to be talking about several and defining what those allergies are mean when you hear somebody talk about ontology for instance what is actually being described there what are all these words and are people just trying to sound smart well maybe maybe some people are just trying to sound smart but it is important to distinguish and draw distinctions between various fields of study and focuses in order to understand the subject matter better but before we get into all the ologies I want to talk just briefly about ugly buildings and ugly people. How should Christians relate to beauty and ugliness? This is something that came up yesterday at work before setting out to go and do some retrofitting of an older well site, adding some automation, bringing that automation into an RTU, taking the data from the RTU and putting it into the SCADA system for the customer in question. Before leaving the office after picking up some supplies, I was standing by my truck and struck up a conversation with a couple of gentlemen. And in the course of this conversation, we turned to the question of beauty. And actually what prompted it was my trying to clean up one of these used transmitters that had previously been in service and it was dirty and it was ugly. And I said, well, it's you know, it's not pretty, it's still ugly, but at least it will be ugly and clean. That's better than being ugly and dirty. And then what followed was a little bit of a philosophical back and forth with one of my coworkers at Eagle Automation over the question of beauty and ugliness and purpose. And I'll be honest with you, we were looking at the Chevron office across the street and thinking to ourselves out loud, you know, that's not a very beautiful building. It's kind of an ugly building. It's a very harshly lined building. It's very utilitarian. There are beautiful buildings in the world, and that is not one of them. It's clean. I'm sure it's well constructed. It's got good materials. It's effective. It does what it needs to do. But then in some sense, beauty also does something. But what does beauty do and what does ugliness do and what do we mean when we call something or someone beautiful or even if we don't call someone or something ugly, we think to ourselves, boy, that's just not a very beautiful, it's it's a rather ugly person or an ugly thing. What do we mean by that? And is there something being done? Is there an essence? Is there a quality of being And maybe something with regards to the purpose of the thing being communicated by either beauty or ugliness. How should Christians relate to beauty and ugliness? That's a question I would love to delve into more in future episodes. But for right now, I just want to throw it out there. I want to throw it out there and I want to ask the question. And I think you'll see as we go through these various allergies, we might find that some of these studies give us an idea of what to make of beauty and ugliness. But in other news, I got a notification yesterday that the Nord Stream pipeline from Russia to Europe has been blown up. Someone blew it up. We don't know who, but someone did it. And the big question is why, right? We're going into winter. Europe in particular was already into some austerity because of Vladimir Putin of Russia, 
cutting off energy supplies to Europe, Europe trying to sanction heavily Russia and Putin in particular and the oligarchs of Russia and anyone doing business with Russia. But they're in a bit of a pickle because they rely on Russia for energy, which is a bad idea. That was a bad idea in the first place to rely so heavily on Russia when you have oil and gas supplies in your own territories or you can get them from friendlier countries like, let's say, for instance, the United States of America. If you can get them from the North Sea, for instance, why would you get them from Russia? It's It, it just... It doesn't make sense. It's a bad idea to create that dependency on a rival at best, an enemy at worst. But now someone has gone and blown up the Nord Stream pipeline. And the question is, why? Who did it and why? Those two questions are very closely related. They're distinct questions. They're separate questions, but they're very closely related questions because the why will narrow down who But also, too, knowing who would give us some idea of why, because we consider the circumstances, we consider their motives, we consider their agenda or their interests. And even if they don't outright tell us their reasons, if we know who did it, we'll probably have some good idea of why they did it. But there are at least two possibilities, to my way of thinking, at least two possibilities for why either A, to punish and terrify Europe If it was Russia, if it was at Putin's command to blow this up, well, then it could be to punish and terrify Europe for having stood up to him over the Ukraine business. He's going to show them who's boss. He's going to blow up the pipeline. And regardless how much energy is or is not flowing from Russia to Europe, there's a kind of harsh finality to blowing up the pipeline. Yes, the pipeline can be rebuilt, but if you blow it up, Right now, it's kind of like blowing up a bridge. Actually, it's, it's very much like blowing up an energy bridge from Russia to Europe. We have no interest in coming back here, potentially, if it was the Russians that blew up their own pipeline. On the other hand, it could be that some NATO ally uh, decision was made here to blow up the pipeline as a way of burning the ships. We are not going back there. We are not going to go back to dependence on Russia, and we are going to blow up the pipeline to make clear that we're not going back. There is no going back. It's just going to go forward into increasing animosity, which I think many of us can predict will at a certain point turn into outright conflict and a shooting war, not just with our weapons in Ukrainian hands, but a larger shooting war between the new axis of Russia and China and the satellite countries which are in their orbits. But more on that, no doubt, in the coming weeks and months. It's a very concerning time for Europe, and we doubtless will be treated to a lot more stories out of Europe as winter gets into full swing and the people of Europe are without reliable or sufficient energy to heat their homes, to electrify their buildings. Very, very concerning. Pray for the people of Europe. Pray for the people of Ukraine. Pray for the people of Russia, for that matter, and for our people. Along similar lines, though, I want to touch briefly about what it is that I do and have been doing for over 10 years now. As you may know, I work in oil and gas. And for 10 years, that's been the way I provide for my family. I have only worked in oil and gas for the past 10 years through boom and bust cycles. I have stayed employed. There have sometimes been gaps where I had left one job. And, uh, you know, like for instance, when I worked for ConocoPhillips and I ended up taking a severance package voluntarily and leaving, it was a few months before I picked up steady work with ZI. And in the meantime, I lived off of the severance package. That's what paid our bills, bought our groceries, whatnot. And I went back to school. But other than that, it's always been maybe a week's time between jobs. Maybe I I can't think of any other larger unit. It's been maybe a week between this job ending and that job starting me leaving this job and taking on a job somewhere else. 
And so I've been very fortunate. I've been very blessed. The Lord has blessed us as a family. And that's not to say that it's been easy. But one of the reasons why it's been worth it, to my way of thinking, is because the modern life, which you and I are accustomed to, is made possible by abundant and inexpensive energy. And that's what we're producing in the oil and gas industry. We are producing energy that makes human civilization in the modern era possible. As Europe is demonstrating, it is not enough to put out solar panels. It's not enough to put up wind turbines. It's not enough to have hydroelectric. It's not enough to have renewable energy. You need something you can throttle up and down like oil and gas and fossil fuels, coal as well, when it's not sunny, when it's not windy. You have to have something that you can ramp up and ramp back down quickly and easily, and nothing in our energy-producing lineup is the equivalent of oil and gas and coal. So human civilization, depending on electrification and the transportation of goods and the heating and cooling of our homes, that's what I'm really doing. I'm providing for my family, yes, but I'm also making it possible for a great many other people to provide for their families. And so here's the question. When there is so much hostility to producing abundant and inexpensive energy, how long can human civilization endure? Or is there an expectation that human civilization should not long endure? That it's not a good thing? Is there a kind of self-loathing baked into the campaign against fossil fuels, producing fossil fuels in your own country? Is there a kind of self-loathing inherent to those moves? I was walking through Walmart the other day. I ran in briefly to grab some things and I saw a t-shirt that said Earth First. And I was thinking to myself, boy, that's an awful slogan. Why is that awful? Because the earth doesn't come first. God comes first. Thereafter, my family comes first. Thereafter, my church family comes first. Thereafter, my friends and my neighbors and my countrymen come first. The earth doesn't come first. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but God comes first. And if I don't have that straight, all manner of awful decisions might follow. And really, for that matter, when did the earth ever say to us, hey, I need you to put me first for a change? Maybe we see an environmental impact to modernization, to industrialization. Sure. But all of the things we're extracting from the ground came from the ground. And a big question, which we'll be getting into as we go into all the ologies, is why? What are these things that we're getting out of the ground that are making human civilization possible, and why are they there? If we know who put them there, kind of like with the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline, if we know who put them there, we might have some idea of why. Or if we know why they were put there, we might have some idea of who put them there. But if we don't know either who put them there or why, then we're lost and we're forlorn. And we can't possibly relate to these things in a wise and productive and fruitful way, which I should say we would want to if we love life, if we love one another. And I think at the end of the day, the reason for a lot of these decisions that just don't make objective sense is that the folks making those decisions that don't make sense don't really love life. They have a lot of wealth. They have a lot of power. But they don't really love life. And they, in particular, don't love the lives of the folks whose futures and presence are negatively impacted, sometimes catastrophically so, by bad decisions. How should we think of that? How should we relate to it? How should we comment on it? I would say, with a view to honoring God, putting God first, and thereafter, consequently, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's what I would say. A question which came up in the conversation yesterday was, 
Should we be optimistic in the long term? It was funny to me how we went from a conversation about cleaning off these pressure transmitters that were dirty and ugly to a conversation about how ugly that building across the street was to a conversation about what's going on politically and philosophically in our country today to a conversation about should we be optimistic in the long term? And I hear from a lot of men about my age that they are not optimistic. And I think to myself, okay, that's fine. Don't be optimistic, but do be realistic. Despairing will get us nowhere. Do we have opportunity? Has God blessed us with ability, with resources, with time, with energy, with gifts? If so, despairing will see us burying our talents in a field, which we ought not to do. We can't afford to do. And God certainly didn't give us these things to do that. But I told the two co-workers of mine at Eagle yesterday, I am hopeful in the long term. And when I say long term, I mean, if the world stands, I am hopeful and optimistic about my children being the future. I'm a father of eight, and I'm optimistic about my children being the future. I am not optimistic that the current trajectory, the way decisions are being made by the powers that be in this country and in the West generally, is sustainable. It cannot be sustained. We are experiencing the unraveling of these ways of thinking every day in increasing measure, and it is not going to turn around until we give up on that way of thinking. But the folks who are currently thinking along very self-destructive, self-loathing lines, most of them are also not having children for the same reasons. But my wife and I, we have. A lot of our friends here in Greeley, for instance, they have. And if we train up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and if we work diligently, whatsoever our hand finds to do, we do it with our might as unto the Lord, then there is a future in that by God's grace. So yes, I am optimistic in the long term. I'm not optimistic in the short term. I am working hard in the short term because we're in a dangerous spot. But I am confident in the Lord's blessings over the generations. And to him, we entrust our fortunes and our futures. In other news, I saw a headline this morning that $1 trillion more in tax revenues in the U.S. has been raked in by our IRS compared with the previous year. $1 trillion more. That's the largest increase since World War II, year over year. And here's my question. Is it wise to extract so much capital from the economy, even as inflation is driving up the cost of everything? To my way of thinking, the simple answer is no, it is not wise. Common people like you and me, seeing the value of our labor go down and down, our investments crashing as the stock market dips below the level it was at when Joe Biden took office, the government has decided it wants to extract more wealth from the economy. And that's not wise. What are people going to live on? All the folks who vote because they think they're voting themselves largesse need to remember that the government does not produce anything. It extracts the products of its citizens, and it takes a very large cut. And there's a lot that's lost to slippage and inefficiency and corruption. And then whatever is given back, being a fraction of what was taken in the first place, What are we getting in return for $1 trillion being extracted by our government from the economy more than the previous year? What do we get back? Higher utility costs, higher grocery costs, a dramatic increase in what it will cost monthly to pay on a mortgage if you buy a home compared with this time last year. This time last year, you could have bought a house nearly 50% bigger for the difference. And you're not getting more house. 
you're getting higher interest payments. What are we getting in return for $1 trillion being extracted by our government from the economy? It really does get down to theologies. And I'm not saying theology, although that is one of the ologies. So what I want to do is I want to go through some of these words that mean important things which we should become familiar with. We should understand the distinction between even just to know that there are categories for ways of studying the world around us, the God above us and over us, the people next to us, ourselves, we ourselves. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through several different ologies, and I'm going to tell you when they originated, breaking down what goes into the name, where the name comes from, and what it means that we study these things. Also, too, I think this is fairly interesting. I have copied and pasted use over time graphs and charts for each of these. And it is very interesting to see how high these graphs have spiked in the past 10 to 20 years. It's very, very interesting because pretty much all of them have spiked up. But starting from the top, ontology. Do you know what ontology is? Well, I'll break it down for you. Early 18th century from modern Latin ontologia, from Greek on or ont, meaning being, plus logi. So this is the branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being. It's also a set of concepts and categories in a subject area or domain that shows their properties and the relations between them. So an example of a sentence in which ontology might be used. What's new about our ontology is that it is created automatically from large data sets. What's new about our ontology is that it is created automatically from large data sets. What an example. So here we've got metaphysics dealing with the nature of being. The nature of being, and we think we can get at the nature of being using computerization, advanced calculations. Is that the way? Is that how to do it? A set of concepts and categories in a subject area or domain that shows their properties and the relations between them. In other words, these things need to be understood in relation to one another. I am a husband. I am a father. But you would not call me a husband or a father if I didn't have a wife and children. I can't be a husband if I don't have a wife. I can't be a father if I don't have children. So the study of being, I am being a husband and a father. And there are certain properties and characteristics that have to do with fatherhood or being a husband. But to describe those, to define those, to explain those is ontology, the nature of being. With regards to God, for instance, we say, that God has godness. He is a divine being, not a divine becoming. And interestingly, he is the only being who is self-existent and needs no one and nothing to be God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is to say, he didn't need the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth needed him. He doesn't need us. We need him. He is the uncaused cause He's the only necessary being. We all, by contrast, are contingent beings. And we're not just contingent with regards to God, although that's the most obvious way in which we are contingent beings. We're also contingent beings with regards to one another, I would say. I would argue. Now, it's interesting. I look at use over time for ontology from 1800 to 2019 the graph is fairly flat until maybe 1830s, 1840s, and then it starts to tick up. And then there's just a very, very gentle rise from 1850 to 1900, where it dips from 1900 to 1950. We see it dip still further back down to almost nothing. People are not really all that concerned with ontology, questions on the nature of being. 
At least they're not writing about it. There's not a lot of mentions of it. There was a trying time with World War I and World War II, so that could have something to do with it. But then, about 1950, we see a slope until around about the 1990s, the 2000s, when there's suddenly a massive spike upwards. We are very, very interested in ontology, or at least we mention it a lot in our writings in the past 20 years or so. That's very interesting to me. We are really talking a lot about, writing a lot about, reading a lot about the nature of being, which shouldn't be terribly surprising, I suppose, given all of the controversy surrounding gender, for instance. Does anyone need to be a fixed gender? Is that an objective thing? Does anyone, even if they have children, need to be a father or a mother? That's really getting at this question of ontology, the nature of being, and a denial of the nature of our being, the insistence that we should be able to redefine who and what we are ex nihilo, out of nothing, with a kind of godlike power of self-determination. Interestingly, the next word I looked up for this podcast episode was etymology, late Middle English from Old French etymologie, via Latin from Greek etymologia, from etymologos, student of etymology, from etuman, neuter singular of etomos, or true. Etymology is the study of the origin of words and the way in which their meanings have changed throughout history. An example sentence given is the decline of etymology as a linguistic discipline. I suppose that's a sentence fragment more than a sentence. Etymology has to do with the origin of words and the historical development of their meaning. Plural noun etymologies. Another example given is the etymology of the word devil. So where does this word devil come from? Has the meaning of the word devil changed throughout history? That's what etymology has to do with. Now, interestingly, mentions of etymology around the year 1800 were at their highest. So there was a far higher frequency of mentions for etymology in 1800. And then we see decreasing interest, just a gradual decrease from 1800 to 1850, from 1850 to 1870s, 1880s. And then from the 1880s to 1900, there's a pretty significant drop-off compared with through the 19th century. The 20th century was not even a quarter so interested with etymology. There's been a little bit of a gradual increase, but not a lot of folks interested in the origin of words, how their use has changed over time. Although maybe we're bringing that back right here in this episode, because I'm talking with you about where these words come from and what they mean and how often they've been mentioned throughout the past two centuries. We'll see. Another word to consider here is teleology, mid-18th century, denoting the branch of philosophy that deals with ends or final causes from modern Latin teleologia, from Greek telos, end, plus logia. The explanation of phenomena in terms of the purpose they serve rather than of the cause by which they arise. No theory of history can do without teleology, is the quote or example sentence they provide. This is related to theology in the doctrine of design and purpose in the material world, which is interesting to me because teleology, the main definition, has to do with explaining phenomena in terms of the purpose they serve rather than of the cause by which they arise. So in other words, we don't necessarily need to know precisely, exactly, down to the minutest detail, how something came to be to understand what it's for. So maybe perhaps an example would be, I don't have to know all of the details on how my Ford F-150 parked in the driveway was constructed, the history on every nut and bolt that goes into that vehicle. I don't have to know exactly who 
and when and how and at what length the construction of that vehicle proceeded to pace to know what that vehicle is for. When I go out to youth group this evening, take my sons to youth group using that F-150, I will know it's telos without having to know all of the causes by which it arose. Now, with regards to theology, the doctrine of design and purpose in the material world, we know generally that God created the heavens and the earth. But the telos of the heavens and the earth is something off to the side. It's something distinct from knowing that God did it. And this one is interesting. If I look at the use over time graph for teleology, not a lot of interest in the 1800s to 1850s. From 1850 to 1900, though, a big uptick in interest. And the graph goes up and down just a little bit, all the way through 1950, 1960, 1970. And then it takes off. And there has never been more interest in teleology if the frequency of mentions is any indication than there is right now. There's a lot of interest in teleology, the doctrine of design and purpose in the material world, the explanation of phenomena in terms of the purpose they serve. Lots of interest in purpose and design. Another interesting graph I note follows very closely the graph for teleology. All of these definitions and graphs from Oxford languages, by the way. Soteriology, mid-19th century, from Greek, soteria, or salvation, plus logi. This is the doctrine of salvation. And it's interesting to me that similar to teleology, there's never been more interest There have never been more mentions percent-wise of soteriology over the past two centuries compared with right now. Lots of interest in the doctrine of salvation, lots of interest in the doctrine of design and purpose in the material world. And these two things do go together. Saved from what? Saved for what? What are we here for? What must I do to be saved? Very closely related questions for the Christian. Another interesting word I thought I would look up and define, since I use this term, ecclesiology, if you don't know, is a mid-19th century word as well from Greek, ekklesia, or assembly, church, plus logi, for the suffix. That is the study of churches, especially church building and decoration, or theology as applied to the nature and structure of the Christian church. I always mean it in the second sense. Theology as applied to the nature and structure of the Christian church, we should be very interested in ecclesiology. The use over time for ecclesiology is fairly flat. There's a little bit of mention around the year 1800, but then it flatlines at practically no interest until about the middle of the 19th century. And then there's a big bump The graph slopes downward gradually at a lazy pace until 1950. And then interest picks up again. And here, as with the previous couple of ologies I mentioned, the graph is higher than it has ever been in the past two centuries right now. People have not been more interested than they are right now in ecclesiology. And I think that's also interesting alongside soteriology and teleology. Theology, proper. Late Middle English, originally applying only to Christianity, interestingly enough. And there are reasons for that, by the way. There are good sound reasons for that. And it has to do with the nature of the truth claims inherent to Christianity. Not a lot to study if you are an ancient Greek pagan or an ancient Norse pagan. Not a lot to study there in terms of building out something we would recognize as being a theology in the way that Christians mean. But from French, theologie, from Latin, theologia, from Greek, from theos, or God, plus logia, or logi. The study of the nature of God and religious belief 
Say, for instance, if you were going to go and get a theology degree, religious beliefs and theory when systematically developed, plural noun theologies, or a willingness to tolerate new theologies. And this one, this graph looks a bit different. There's been a lot of mentions, fairly consistently, of theology in English since 1800. There was a gradual slope upward from 1800 to 1850, then things kind of leveled off until about 1900 or close to the end of the 19th century. And then we see a steady drop from 1900 to 1950 through World War I and World War II. Not a lot of interest in theology, apparently. And these two things might be a bit of a chicken and egg question. Did the waning interest in theology contribute to the fact of a World War I and a World War II? Did the fact of World War I and World War II contribute to people being less interested in studying theology because they're just trying to survive? They're more concerned with the immediate present? Either way, about 1950, we start to see an uptick in mentions of theology, and then things taper off about 1960, 1970, and then they pick back up again. And right now, there is more interest in theology than there has been by virtue of mentions since 1800. There are more mentions of theology now than there were from 1850 to 1900, which was the previous plateau. Another ology, anthropology, is the study of human societies and cultures and their development, the study of human biological and physiological characteristics and their evolution. Use over time, almost none from 1800 to 1850, from 1850 to 1900, a steady increase from 1900 to 1950, we see a fairly flat trend and then sloping upwards. And from 1950 to the present, it's been almost a steady and uninterrupted year-over-year increase in interest. A little bit of a dip in the early 2000s, it looks like. And now we've kind of plateaued there as well. Not quite as much interest in anthropology. And this might be related to how we see energy policy being crafted. What was I saying about a bit of self-loathing? Maybe we're just not quite as interested in studying human beings because we don't like what we see. That could be. That's a possibility. Technology. That's another ology, which you might not think of together with anthropology and theology, but technology from the early 17th century Greek uh, roots, the English word being from the early 17th century, but the Greek being much older, the Greek word being technologia, or systematic treatment from techne, meaning art or craft, plus logia, the application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes, especially in industry. For instance, advances in computer technology, machinery and equipment developed from the application of scientific knowledge. Quote, it will reduce the industry's ability to spend money on new technology, end quote. Technology is also the branch of knowledge dealing with engineering or applied sciences. So very practical, not so metaphysical as physical and practical. And here again, we have another interesting graph that doesn't quite look like others. Through the 1800s and 1850s, on up to 1900, practically no mentions compared with from 1900 to 1950, a little bit of a gradual increase year over year. And then from 1950 to maybe the 1980s, the tick marks are not real distinct, except every 50 years. So I'm, I'm thinking that's about the 1980s, 1990s. That's the peak. Maybe it was the dot-com bubble. I don't know. <laughs> but then there's a sudden drop-off. And we're still on, we're still in a leveled off uh, shelf, if you will, coming down from that peak in the year 2019. Not quite as much interest in technology. The graph is much more gentle for anthropology, but there are similarities. 
to the way that anthropology and technology mentions over the past two centuries have peaked around about the same time and then dipped and leveled off. Not dropped to nothing, but decreased, diminished. There is diminished interest in talking about technology relative other things. There's a decreased interest in talking about anthropology relative other things. So let's deal with the common root here. We call these logi because they come from the Greek logia because they all have to do with logic. So what is logic? Late Middle English, the old French logique and late Latin logica from Greek logike or techne, art of reason from logos, word or reason. Logic is reasoning conducted or assessed according to strict principles of validity. Quote, experience is a better guide to this than deductive logic, end quote. Similar words and ideas include the science of reasoning, science of deduction, science of thought, dialectics, argumentation, ratiocination, a particular system or codification of the principles of proof and inference, for instance, Aristotelian logic, the systematic use of symbolic and mathematical techniques to determine the forms of valid deductive argument, plural noun logics, the quality of being justifiable by reason. Quote, there's no logic in telling her not to hit people when that's what you're doing, end quote. Similar ideas and concepts and words, reason, judgment, logical thought, rationality, cognition, wisdom, sagacity, sound judgment, sense, good sense, common sense, rationale, sanity, deduction, inference, syllogistic reasoning, coherence, relevance, horse sense. I've never heard of horse sense, by the way. The course of action or line of reasoning suggested or made necessary by, quote, if the logic of capital is allowed to determine events, end quote. Similar reasoning, line of reasoning, chain of reasoning, process of reasoning, argument, argumentation. Two, a system or set of principles underlying the arrangements of elements in a computer or electronic device so as to perform a specific task, logical operations collectively. Now here, the use over time, in the 1800s, there was a fair amount of talk about logic. From the 1800s to 1850, it was fairly flat. And then around about 1850, we see a rise until 1870, 1880. And then we see things dip from about the mid of the 19th century until the end of the 19th century. We see this gradual falling off, this gradual slope of interest that carries on into the 1910s and 1920s. And then we see a little bit of an increase through the 1930s, 1940s, where it plateaus again until 1950. And then in 1950, we see year over year, more and more and more interest in logic until let's say the 2010s. And then there's another leveling off and just a gradual decline, which is to say there's less interest compared with the rate of increase. We've stopped being increasingly interested in logic, but there's still a lot of interest in logic. There's still a lot of interest in reasoning, particularly from 1950 to the present. We've maybe quadrupled the frequency of mentions for logic. Now, I mention all of this, and I have a question. And my question is, if we were to study these things, logic, for instance, in a systematic way, and then apply a logical approach, a reasonable approach to technology, anthropology, theology, ecclesiology, soteriology, teleology, etymology, ontology, in no particular order, all the ologies, what would the outcome be? Would that be beneficial? There's a passage that comes to mind. Philippians 4, 5 through 9. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this is curious, right? This is very curious, this passage. 
It starts off, Paul does to the church at Philippi, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Well, that's got to be describing communication. How can people know that you're reasonable if you're not communicating, if you're not speaking openly, if you're not reasoning openly, out loud? And then do not be anxious about anything. So what kind of reasoning is it? Is it an anxious, nervous, worried, self-conscious kind of reasoning? No. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then what does it say? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why do our hearts and our minds need to be guarded? Quite simply, because there's a lot of tomfoolery and nonsense. Tomfoolery, by the way, is another word which frequency of usage is at an all-time high for. (laughs) Go figure. No one is surprised. Let's be honest. But. There's a lot of tomfoolery. There's a lot of foolishness. There's a lot of unreasonableness. There's a lot of wickedness. And if we're not careful, if the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, does not guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, we will be undone. We will despair. We will give up. We will throw in the towel. And that is not what we are supposed to be about. When we gather together, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be encouraging one another, challenging one another trying to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That's what we're supposed to be about. Paul continues, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This, to my way of thinking, is also a good description of appreciating beauty. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely. Lovely is a fine word for beauty. Commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Think on those things. One might even say, make a study of those things. You might as well, if you're going to be thinking about them, try and organize your thinking on these things so that you understand them rightly. Won't it be easier to think about these things if you're thinking about them in an orderly way? in a reasonable way. More to the point, I think Philippians 4, 5 through 9, in some sense is giving us a mandate, a prompt, the inspiration for doing science. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think on that. Think on those things. Think on those things, right? Think on those things, You might say, oh, but that's a distraction. I should be thinking about God. If you want to honor God, in some measure, it's inescapable that you do so by the way you relate to his creation. And again, I'll point out all these ologies. What are they actually when you really boil it down to logic, reason, and reasonableness? And we're commanded to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. In some sense, you could say this is the seed of an idea that grows up into a mighty oak in Western civilization. This little seed grows up into a giant shade tree. But to separate out any portion of Philippians 4, 5 through 9 is to take an axe to the roots. Do not be anxious about anything. So our science should not be marked by anxiety about the future. Oh, it's all coming to an end. It's all coming crashing down. No, no. Don't be anxious about anything. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think what we're seeing is we are seeing ourselves undone right now because We have not been following that piece of it. Practice these things, he says. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things. Practice. Like, do those things a lot until you get good at them. Again, with the excellence thing. Let it be an art and a science, according to knowledge, according to reasonableness, because you're supposed to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. 
Now, I'm not saying this is the way that science is conducted in our day in the mainstream, but what is left of science that grew out of passages like Philippians 4, 5 through 9 has to, has to think on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, has to make practical, as in put into practice, what's been learned and received and heard and seen. So it's not just theory, and it's not just a lot of sophistry living in the platosphere. It's practical, but it has to be. It has to be in line with the remembrance that the Lord is at hand and that we're called to not be anxious about anything and that we're called to let our requests be made known to God by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. I've got a van speaking of science and climate change and anxiety. I've got a 2012 Ford E350 I need to take for emissions testing so I can get registration renewed. So I'm going to go do that. But some things to consider, some things to ponder, some things to mull over. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.